Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Three years ago, Paul Black from WCM Investment Management joined me on the show for a very popular conversation. At the time, WCM managed $25 billion in global growth equities out of the limelight in Laguna Beach, California. Last year, I had a second conversation with WCM with Mike Trigg, the portfolio manager of its Focused Growth International strategy. Mike discussed the colorful history of the firm and its research to identify businesses with widening moats and cultures aligned with their competitive advantage. Both shows are available on the feed. 
Well, in the last three years, WCM has continued to excel and defy the headwinds of active management. Their $25 billion in assets under management three years ago has grown to around $100 billion today. Today's show is, in effect, the third meeting with WCM. My guest is Mike Tian, Portfolio Manager and Analyst at WCM, where he oversees the firm's emerging markets strategy and thinks deeply about moat trajectories. Our conversation begins with Mike's definition of moats and assessment of moat trajectories using Visa as an example. We then turn to his application of moat trajectory analysis in China, including the value of heavy industries, analysis of culture, consumer preferences, risk, and some investment examples along the way. We close with Mike's thoughts on the moat trajectory of WCM itself. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that we're enrolling the first cohort of Capital Allocators University, a live online course that starts on September 21st. Rahul Mudgal and I put together a course to help train investment professionals on the skills they need to succeed at the most senior levels of their organizations, but that aren't typically taught in investment curriculum. We'll be joined by an all-star cast of past guests on the show to help you learn foundational skills like time management and public speaking, and value-added ones like decision-making and networking. Hop on the website and click University in the menu to learn more. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Tian from WCM. Mike, great to see you. You too, Ted. I know there's a history of... Morningstar trained analysts somehow finding their way to WCM. You fit right into that, but why don't you tell a little bit of your story and how you got to WCM in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite serendipitous, I will say. I joined Morningstar right out of undergrad in 2006. I was very fortunate to land there. At that point, the Morningstar Equity Research Department was still very, very new. They were just really trying to figure it out. And it was very good because as a young analyst, I didn't have a senior analyst to report to. I was giving a ton of responsibilities right off the bat, essentially, which is insane for like a 21-year-old. I was basically the primary coverage on a number of different companies. And the best thing about Morningstar is that they gave you a very nice framework to think about things. And they looked at the universe in a very consistent way. Of course, number one is the moat. And had a very, I still think to this day, a very, very good way of looking at that that is actually applicable to virtually all the companies that are out there, regardless of industry, how they divided up the moat sources and things of that nature, how they characterize companies as wide moat, narrow moat, no moat. That mental framework, that way of looking at the world is awesome. So I joined Morningstar as a fresh green analyst, and I was actually on the natural resources team, which is ridiculous because it's the (laughs) first thing from anything I do now, of course. So I used to cover, believe it or not, coal companies and like ethanol companies and these weird little alternative energy companies, oil pipelines, refineries, things of that nature. It wasn't the best coverage list. I just put it that way. In fact, the majority of companies I cover at that point are bankrupt today. So that kind of gives you some idea. But Morningstar is also really good because it gives you, if you wanted to take responsibility for things, it was a very open company to that sort of thing. And my interests were, I would say, quite far-ranging, way outside of um, just natural resources. 
And it's actually a very collegial atmosphere as well. There's a lot of analysts. Everyone's all sort of on the same page, thought about companies in the same way. So you're encouraged to talk to all of your colleagues. There's almost 100 equity analysts there covering God knows how many companies, over, well over 1,000 companies. So I was learning a lot. And one of the things I kind of moved into as it became apparent to me, I guess, that my coverage list wasn't going anywhere, the investment newsletter. In fact, it's the same investment newsletter that Mike Trigg, the director of research essentially at WCM, used to run years ago when he was at Morningstar. So I learned a lot doing that. And at the same time, another thing I did is I was what they were called an equity strategist. As part of that role, I was doing a lot of work on, I suppose, Morningstar called a moat trend, which is a very, very similar thing to what WCM is doing as far as moat trajectory is concerned. It's kind of looking at the evolution of a company's moat. Where is it going? And I was one of the people primarily responsible for driving that research methodology, I suppose. With the full benefit of hindsight, I made a lot of mistakes <laughs> and kind of formulating the original concept and carrying it out as well. But either case, super interesting learning experience. And it's really through the work I was doing on the newsletter as well as on Motrend that came to the attention of WCM, who were Morningstar clients. So I've talked a couple of years ago with Paul and then last year with Mike about the concept of Mot trajectory and how you think about it. I'm curious, how do you start by thinking about what the sources of moats are? We think of economic moats as having the following moat sources. So number one will be, I would call, intangible assets, which is really a catch-all for a number of different things. It could be a brand, trademark, commercial relationships, customer relationships, even regulatory protection, and all that. So that's number one. Number two will be some sort of a cost advantage driven by scale or something else. It doesn't have to be scale, but something that causes you to produce something at a lower cost than somebody else. Number three, it will be switching costs, fairly self-explanatory. Number four will be network effects. And number five, which is really the least important most source, I think, is efficient scale. And that's the idea that you have a very niche market that perhaps can only support one player. And if somebody else were to get into it, it would destroy the economics for both. Therefore, nobody will want to get in there. But the reason that doesn't really work that well is because you have to rely on other people to be quote-unquote rational, which doesn't always happen in the real world. But either case, we found that almost all the competitive advantages in the world is some manifestation of a combination of some of these five. And as you walk through those, a big part of what I've heard about WCM is this concept of not having a moat, but a growing moat, an expanding moat. How do you think through, when you're looking at a company, what of those factors are the things that are driving that moat to be growing over time? This is actually a really complex question because it's one of those things that's easy to think from a very high level, but putting into practice is a bit difficult. So I'll give you a very, very high-level litmus test, and this is the way I think about it. So if you can imagine a business that is today, and then you close your eyes and you think about what the business looks like let's say, three years from now, a decent length of time from now. And the question you ask yourself is like, all right, in the future, is it a better or worse business than it is today? 
that's a very high level question to kind of ask yourself, and it tends to reasonably guide you in the right direction. But in practice, when you get down to the nitty gritty, there's also many other ways to look at the problem. So, for example, you can start with the most sources themselves if you want. Let's say that you're a network effect company. Are you constantly adding nodes to that network? You're getting becoming more enmeshed. Is your ecosystem growing denser, better, however you want to put it? That's one way. If you're looking at switching costs, are you getting more embedded into your customers? Is your customers more and more reliant upon you? They're more and more loyal, so to speak. If you're looking at a brand company, how is that brand evolving from a consumer perception standpoint? So you can kind of go down the list. Sometimes too, which I tend to find it's a very powerful thing, companies will develop complementary mode drivers or modes, complementary modes to the ones they already have. And typically with economic modes, it's sort of like a one plus one equals three situation. A great example that everyone knows about is, let's say, Amazon developing its own logistics. That wasn't part of the moat back in the early days, but when you do that, obviously it has a synergistic effect on the rest of your business. Apple and the App Store, very similar. But those are very famous examples. But there's many other examples in the world. So if you see that happening, that is often a powerful sign. Other questions you can ask yourself: Is the barrier to entry or the barrier to success in this business going up or down over time? Obviously, if you think barrier to entry is going down, that's a very bad thing. If it's going up, typically it's a good thing. Is the business taking market share? Is it becoming more relevant in terms of its position in a particular value chain or to its customers? Even so, those are some other examples you can ask. Another dimension we really talk about is the durability of growth, which is very, very important to moat trajectory. So, is the company constantly Investing in itself so that you can grow not just in the next one, two, three years, but for five, ten years, or even longer. Or is the company planting those seeds for the longer-term growth? How strong the tailwinds in a particular industry? Are they long-lasting tailwinds? You might run for the next couple of years, but beyond that, like who knows? Obviously, we are typically looking for tailwinds that are powerful and long-lasting, like e-commerce, enterprise software, whatever it is, something like that. And another dimension you can probably look is really on the opposite side. So, what are the sources of moat destruction? So, I kind of invert the problem. And from what we see, some of the common sources are competition. Disruption, secular headwinds in terms of how consumer preferences, generally something around those lines, or perhaps regulatory action, that's going to be longer term. And oftentimes, the absence of these negative moat drivers or moat eroders is actually a good sign for the business. If you can't come up with a bear case, sometimes that's a, or oftentimes that's a very good sign for the positive moat trajectory of the business. As you're describing these sort of signposts, call them of like what an expanding mode is, it seems like a lot of it is qualitative. And if you're looking at a business today and the same business three years out, how do you calibrate some of those things that are clearly qualitative in a business? Almost everything we do is qualitative. We're not really big on modeling or anything like that, and even modeling out market shares and whatnot. This is sort of like a finger in the air type of thing. We don't really put a whole lot of stock in that. For almost all businesses, there are usually a lot of countervailing forces, and you have to have a good judgment 
as far as your how to balance out these forces in order to come out with a final determination of whether the mode trajectory is positive or negative. And sometimes it's actually very difficult. Let me just give you one example that I think a lot of people would know. Let's say Visa. So as we know, there is a very powerful tailwind in terms of digitization of payments. These networks have been very entrenched for decades, very difficult to change. Obviously, the stocks and all that perform very well over time. But there's also countervailing forces to that. So one, in developed markets, the runway to further digitization is probably narrowing. Who uses cash nowadays? I haven't used cash in forever. So that is somewhat going away over time. In emerging markets, there are a lot of new competitive forces to that. So emerging markets, longer term, it's probably going to be a much stronger tailwind driver because you're starting at a more nascent stage and those economies are growing faster. But if you look, let's say, for, for example, in China, that market is heavily impacted by the rise of WeChat Pay or Alipay that don't really run on card rails at all. In India, you have the same thing with UPI. In Brazil, you have PIX, and there's other countries that are launching these new payment rails that consumers are probably going to adopt that are not going to be on the car rails. Even in developed markets, in the longer term, when you have buy now, pay later, what does that mean to the car rails? We don't really know. If the Federal Reserve launches instant ACH in the future, that's going to be free to use. What does that mean for the card rails? We don't know. These are all countervailing forces you kind of have to make a judgment against. And it's really not straightforward in many cases. So how do we really do that for many of these stories? And a lot of it honestly comes down to experience and judgment and having the right mental model with which to assess a particular story. Usually it's some sort of a framing you have on a particular problem given a certain set of facts on the ground that lets you do it. Overall, I will say there's not really like a scientific way that you have to have it. Is I will say it's some of the tool sets we've developed over the years as far as pattern recognition, typologies, and things of that nature probably plays a stronger role in terms of how we assess the mode trajectory. Of course, the culture work is part of that as well versus, let's say, hard and fast rules in the ground or some sort of a checklist you can use to balance some of these forces that you have. So just to use that one example, if you pull the thread a little bit on Visa, where do you come out? It's actually a debate that we've been having internally. So I can't actually tell you for sure. My personal opinion, which doesn't necessarily reflect the views of WCM as it were, is that the trajectory is narrowing here. The story is getting tougher to believe in today than it was, say, three, four years ago. A lot of that is honestly coming from my own seat in emerging markets. And seeing the massive, massive growth in some of these new rails in places like Brazil and India and see how well they work and how quickly consumers adapt to it and really leapfrog the card rails makes me nervous. Now, developed markets, consumers are a bit more sticky in their habits, so it's not going to be as quick of a change. But the runway is also getting a bit narrower in developed markets. I'm sure the card rails are trying to extend that through some of the initiatives as far as getting into like B2B payments, for example, which are going to be helpful. But nevertheless, I think the trajectory is worse than it was several years ago. And that makes us nervous. So how does the rubber meet the road 
internally at WCM when it comes to that decision process? And each individual may have a slightly different view of something like Visa. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that's hotly debated, I will say, all these digital payments companies. I come at it from a more jaundiced EM view, obviously, and I see all these things playing out on EM, and I surface these things. And there's guys here that come at it from a more developed markets view of the business, and they stress some of these more initiatives that Visa has in place in order to extend its growth trajectories. Right now, I don't think there's a very clear resolution. But the fact is, because we have a very broad view across the world, we can surface all of these data points. And hopefully at some point, there will be an emerging consensus as far as that's what's going on. It's very important for everyone to have a very open mind about things. And that's part of the culture that we have at WCM. There's people who love to visa for years and years and years and years. But you got to change your mind. And if you see enough data points that are out there that are contrary to your view, you have to change your mind. And that's the way it kind of works here. I'd love to apply this broad framework you're talking about, mode trajectories and the subtleties of making the decisions to a lot of the work you're doing in emerging markets and say particularly with China. Topical for lots of reasons these days. How have you approached taking the WCM framework and applying it to investing in China? I will say how we think about moats, for instance, it's fairly universal. The same moat sources that apply elsewhere in the world also apply in China. And I think most people agree with that. Now, the difference is that we have to calibrate a bit more when it comes to certain of these forces that affect moat trajectory. There's differences in China versus the rest of the world. Let's say, for example, the consumer is actually a bit more fickle in China, I think, versus the rest of the world. There's very few good FMCG or fast-moving consumer good companies in China. You see the brand turnover, at least outside of the prestige or luxury space, is very fast. And unlike the rest of the, let's say in the U.S., for example, in which distribution is difficult, it's more bricks and mortar, and consumers have been ingrained in terms of buying certain brands for decades, China is not really like that. You have these KOL-driven things that can find audiences on ByteDance, on Taobao, or whatever it is. Consumers are very eager, oftentimes, I think, to try new things as well. So it's much easier for new brands to kind of appear, just as an example. So the same mental models you use to assess some of these developed market things, it doesn't really necessarily apply in China. But there's also lots of places where you can use pattern recognition and using more of a global mindset to assess companies in China. And oftentimes, we have actually quite a bit of success there. For example, we were super early into the contract resource organizations or contract drug manufacturing organizations as far as like Wuxi Aptech, Wuxi Bio, names like that, because we've been investing in these companies in the developed markets for years and years. Way back in the day, when you were to talk to investors in China about some of these pharmaceutical services companies, they will be like, oh, yeah, no big deal. These are just, they don't own IP, obviously. They're just service vendors. And if you want to invest in pharma, you're much better off with a drug company that earns generally higher margins and they own the IP. But from our experiences overseas, we know how valuable, how sticky some of these relationships are, and we know the value that they bring to the table in terms of allowing the pharmaceutical companies to accelerate their innovation. 
and especially in a world in which Chinese pharma companies really need to step on the gas in terms of R&D, we had a variant perception there, and that's kind of driven by our global framework. Many times you do have to start with first principles. It's like, what does the pharmaceutical companies want? And is that the same in China versus the rest of the world? In this case, yeah, it is. They want to bring innovations to market at a lower cost and a faster pace, and these CROs do do that for them, and that gives them stickiness and pricing power. I think the world has come around to our point of view, but that was one example of us bringing a different mindset, I suppose, to Chinese companies. As a lot of the Chinese technology companies have blossomed in the last couple of years, it's easy to think about what might be a widening moat. As one of these asset light businesses, and certainly we've seen that around the world. I know you've done some work and thought process recently on the difference between some of the heavier industries and what that implies for moats and the lighter ones. It's sort of a different conclusion than I would have expected, and I'd love you to talk about the difference in how you view these heavy industries and light industries. So oftentimes, when you talk to a internet business, especially. They go to is like, oh, we want to be a quote unquote platform and just connect everyone around us, and we're going to be the nexus, and therefore we're going to be the center of value. We're going to do this one thing, and we're going to get paid a lot of money for it. And by the way, we're going to be asset light. We're going to be labor light, and make really high margins. That's exactly the way that Alibaba did the business, and I actually I think it's. Potentially an, an original sin. It's the way that eBay thought, and it didn't really work out that well for them. Versus, let's say, an Amazon. Now, what I've observed in internet is that there is really a lot of value in being heavy if you can do it right. That's one of the critical things. For example, in food delivery, Meituan is a very heavy business. It directly or indirectly, I suppose, controls like an army of God knows hundreds of thousands of riders, and so on and so forth. It's a very operationally complex business, which, from the perspective of a founder, is not a great thing. Many times, imagine some of these founders, especially if you're a software guy, you're thinking it's like, all right, I just want to make really great software, and all this other stuff around you, all right, whoever can take care of that, those are just a bunch of grunts. These riders are grunts. But if you want to operate a really good, complex business, there is an art to being a bit more efficient than others. Which, in the case of food delivery, actually makes a huge difference. Because what happens is that if you can do something operationally to save a penny per order, you scale that up over like a billion orders. That's real money. And it's those like incremental improvements in terms of your efficiency, in terms of your cost, speed, whatever metric you want to do, that over a long time actually adds up to a really sustainable competitive advantage. And it's really not easy to do. It takes different mindset, I suppose, for companies to embrace that level of complexity, to embrace managing hundreds of thousands of people. But in a lot of really successful businesses. It kind of happens. We saw that Amazon actually in the U.S. embraced that much more so than eBay, and it actually turned out to be a huge source of strength and advantage for them in the longer term. Meituan certainly did that against Alibaba, and I will argue PDD did that versus Alibaba. 
as well. Alibaba is a classic. Oh, we just want to be like the platform in the middle, make huge margins, and they are the most profitable e-commerce company, arguably in the world. But they're losing market share versus all of these other competitors that are out there. There's actually other domains too. Carvana in the U.S. has a very similar model. It's a very heavy model, but they can control the entire. Experience stack for the customer and the entire operational stack, and that leaves advantages for them in the longer term. It's not easy to do, but it definitely leaves advantages. Beike, which is a property brokerage platform, does the same thing in China and has taken a massive amount of market share. Now, of course, now like the stock is down because the government maybe like nuking them or whatever it is. But it was a very clever thing for them to do. It's very impressive strategically and operationally. That's the gist where I was coming from. Really, there's two dimensions to it. Companies can be heavy on asset front, or they can be heavy on an operational front, and ideally both. If we can do both really well, that could be a powerful operational and strategic competitive advantage for you longer term. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle. Helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember: thirty-six thousand, twenty-five, and one. Thirty-six thousand is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to Netsuite by Oracle. Netsuite turns twenty-five years old this year. That's twenty-five years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download Netsuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/allocators. That's netsuite.com/allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/allocators. And now back to the show. And how do you balance in your thought process of what will make an attractive business to own in your portfolio? Take an Alibaba that has been so powerful and growing moats in a lot of ways over the years compared to something that's more asset heavy. I think it all just comes down to the trajectory of the moat. The last thing you want to do is own a company that's really big, really profitable, but losing relevance and losing their competitive advantages slowly over time. Alibaba is a very difficult case because it's such a complex company. There's a lot of moving pieces, but certainly in core commerce, they have really lost a step in recent years. I would much rather take the more complex, heavier one. That's actually growing in terms of competitive advantage and relevance, even if it has much lower profitability today. We haven't talked a lot about culture, which is obviously an important part of how you go about analysis. How do you apply that lens of culture tied to competitive advantage in Chinese businesses? A lot of the things we look for are really very similar to what we do globally. So our approach to culture is that number one, there has to be alignment between the culture, the business. And what it needs to do in order to grow its competitive advantages over time, and obviously those things that need to do those behaviors and values in a business is going to be very different depending on their longer term aims. 
But nevertheless, I think that is a universal truth. That framework of thinking about businesses, I think, is a universal truth. And we do that in China as well. Now, the difference in China, of course, is that you're dealing with these first-generation founders for the most part. Companies in China are very young, which is actually kind of easy to forget when you consider the scale of some of these businesses. But they're very young, and the founder is generally a person in their 30s to 50s. They're still many years away, I suppose, of going to the second generation or finding a professional successor. And also, Chinese companies in many cases tend to be much more centralized in terms of power. So you do have to take into consideration a lot more, I think, that founders' proclivities, their strengths and weaknesses, and so on, when you make a bit of a culture call, because that founder does have a greater sway, I suppose, on the culture and effectiveness of a company, probably than most companies you'll find elsewhere in the world. How do you factor in the other big sway, which is particularly recently what's going on with government influence? And some of these strategic assets. Yeah, that is a very difficult question. I certainly don't claim to have the answer for it. I think nowadays people came to the realization that the government has certain social aims that they have actually been telegraphing for a long time, but nobody took them seriously. And all of a sudden, now people are taking them seriously as far as like reducing the burden in education, which is massive expense for a lot of Chinese families and adds just enormous pressure to kids and things of that nature. Reducing inequality in housing certainly is another driver, and there's many others as well. Like right now, improving the treatment of contract labor when it comes to drivers and things of that nature is another policy aim that people have. Now, the thing that in China, obviously, is that you don't have all these checks and balances that you have in the typical Western rulemaking process or regulatory process, where you have lobbyists, you have all this back and forth consensus building, and so on. They can just snap a finger and get it done for better or worse. So the regulatory whipsaw is a lot more severe than what you have in the rest of the world. Now, from our perspective, we definitely try to stay clear of the regulatory hotspots. I just don't think that's our competitive advantage. I definitely don't want to be in a situation where every night I'm going through and reading the government news and trying to figure it out. It's like, oh, what's going to happen to my portfolio companies the next day or something like that. I mean, that is a treadmill I definitely do not want to be on. So. We want to stay away to the extent possible. It's actually not really possible because the government touches everything. To stay away from the areas that are most exposed to government pressures. For example, now you have a lot of drug price tendering in China, and tendering, and also coming to medical devices and things of that nature in healthcare. So we want to drastically reduce or just not have any exposure to things of that nature, and we want to be, to the extent possible, more or less either neutral or aligned with the government aims longer term. At least the spirit of the rules that the government has laid out in the longer term. How have you managed around some of the recent events with some of the names that historically you might have owned—an Alibaba, Tencent, things that were great businesses with widening moats that all of a sudden have. At least some hiccup, thanks to the government. It's interesting because we've been underweight China Internet for a long time, which actually is surprising for me to say that, just because you think we're high quality investors, and those are most people will consider them high quality businesses. But the truth is, for a lot of these companies, we never got comfortable with the longer term trajectory. 
And a lot of that in the consumer internet space, especially, is really because consumer habits change really, really fast in China. Think about the rise of a ByteDance, literally from nothing to like a massive giant company in like three, four years. That doesn't happen pretty much anywhere else in the world. And there's drivers for that. I think number one, like I said, I think consumer habits are just maybe a bit more open in China versus elsewhere. But also, you have just massive density of users in China. Getting to a hundred million users or a certain amount of critical scale is really. It's not. I wouldn't say really easy, but it's certainly far easier in China versus anywhere else in the world, and that drives disruption. Traffic is more promiscuous in China because you have WeChat ecosystem to drive the rise of PDD, for example, or Meituan, for example. The traffic in China, for various reasons, is more fungible than it is in the rest of the world, and it can be. So platforms, very powerful traffic drivers, can sometimes direct that traffic in unexpected places to drive competition and disruption. The capital environment in China is very benign, so that it's pretty easy for a lot of these companies to raise huge amounts of capital and to burn that capital over time, and so on. So there's really a lot of reasons that we were actually uncomfortable with the mode trajectories of a lot of the businesses we could be talking about. And so we didn't have them, and of course, there's this whole ADR situation, which we were never super comfortable with from a governance or a capital allocation standpoint. So for all those reasons, we kind of avoided a lot of the problems. I suppose we really find a lot more opportunities elsewhere in the China market. How do you go about doing the research on China from here, when some of these trends are so rapidly moving? The research process, I would say, is very similar, honestly, to what we do elsewhere in the world. I started my career obviously here in the United States, but a lot of the skills I've learned over my career are very applicable in China. Now, you do have to interpret certain things that you read here differently, and you have to recognize that the environment is just in general like faster moving. The competition is generally more intense. But overall, the things that we do elsewhere in the world, like talking to customers, suppliers, competitors, partners, talking to the company, doing all the normal things that we do around a business, it's pretty much very similar. So, with all the positives and some of the recent negatives, looking at some of these businesses in China, in your broader emerging market mandate, how exposed are you to China on a, either an absolute or a relative basis? In emerging market strategy, we actually have a policy of being relatively close to benchmark weights when it comes to geos. So we're pretty close to that. We're like forty something percent, I think it is, for Greater China. Even if I weren't somewhat constrained by that, I'm actually really excited about opportunities in China. Now, it's not necessarily in these internet companies, but China is a very, very large market, and I think a lot of people here don't really realize just how big it is because they're used to seeing the names that are in the news all the time. But there's thousands of listed companies in China, and the market caps are like in a, you know, I want to say it's like 15 trillion or something like that. It's tremendous. It's the second largest market in the world, and it's super liquid. And in China, it's a sufficiently large economy, so there's a lot of specialization. And there's a lot of really special companies, really interesting companies, what we call like niche champions that you find in China that you don't actually find in a lot of emerging markets. 
because there's not enough specialization in a small emerging market in order to create these local champion companies. And it's really in those types of businesses that I think we have the most compelling type of investment opportunities longer term. What are some of the examples of those? Just to throw a few things out there for you. We're investors in a company called Hunsun Technologies. And what they are is a near monopoly maker of critical financial software for brokerages, banks, the stock exchange, and things of that nature. Obviously, extremely sticky business with 99.9 renewal rates and pricing power and a regulatory tailwind because the financial market opening up, more compliance and things of that nature generates a lot of opportunities for them longer term. Obviously, a fairly profitable business as well. Just one example. We're invested in this company called Angel East, which has like a 40% market share in East in China. And it's actually a big company, just East, but they make a lot of East. And in China, there's this nice tailwind of people eating more bread over time because bread is like a new thing. It's not rice because bread is a newer entrant to China. So that is like the consumption is going up over time. And some of the byproducts from East is actually pretty useful in animal and human nutrition. It was actually being used as a sodium substitute if you want to eat less salt, but flavorant in that sense. That's just another example, actually a fairly profitable business. I kind of mentioned earlier that we were involved in some of these pharmaceutical services companies in China when it comes to an Asimchem or a Wuxi. We're investors in a company that, believe it or not, makes dust mites. So if you have an allergy, what you do is that if you want to, you can take a drop of basically pulverized dust mites on your tongue. And over time, your immune system will get used to it and you wouldn't have the allergy anymore. Okay, believe it or not, there is a national champion of dust mites in China. It's a pretty much a monopoly. It makes a huge margin and it grows pretty quickly. The company's name is Wall. So those are some very random examples I gave you, but they exist in China. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Maybe the United States, but that's pretty much it. When you bring this all together, what do you see as the biggest risks and you're investing in China. A very common thing with a lot of our companies is that we're invested in the leading champion or whatever it is of a particular industry. Now, the thing in China is that it's far more competitive than other markets. There's a lot of really hungry entrepreneurs that are rising all the time in order to take the crown away. And customers are, even in the B2B space, a bit more fickle than you've seen elsewhere in the world as well. So the risk we're always fighting against for almost all of our investments is commoditization. When you have a robotics company or whatever it is, there's like literally hundreds of robotics companies in China chasing that. If you're going to invest in semiconductors, there's hundreds of companies in semiconductors doing that. It's almost like nowhere else in the world when you have that level of competitive intensity. So making that culture call correctly actually is pretty important in China, arguably even more important than elsewhere in the world, especially those traits of adaptability. Can you really roll with the punches when the environment is fast changing, when the competitive landscape is fast changing. And oftentimes, if we make that bet wrong, then you probably have issues. How do you make those assessments about management teams when it's a different culture, sometimes different language, and you're not there on the ground with them, so it can be harder just to get access? Sure. 
Well, I am Chinese, so that <laughs> tends to help a bit. But it's hard. It just comes down to a lot of it is experience of having spoken to hundreds of management teams all over the world, having a baseline of what a good management team is like and how they behave and so on. A lot of it, honestly, is track record as well. What we really like to see is management teams that not only survive but thrive through adversity. Like if they've been through multiple rounds of very adverse conditions, fierce wars when it comes to competition, major disruptive threats, and they have emerged stronger than they were before, that is typically a powerful endorsement of the culture and management quality of that business. There's nothing like it. Ah,、uh, it's great. I want to ask you one last question before we turn to some closing questions, and let's bring it full circle back to WCM. It's safe to say the firm's been on a great trajectory the last couple of years. I'm curious if you take the moat trajectory lens and turn it on your own business, how do you think about WCM's moat trajectory today? That's a great question, Ted, and it's obviously something that we've thought a lot about in the last five or ten years. So, I guess first of all, what is the moat of a money management business? And as you know, that this is an industry where Most sources are rather tenuous. It's really, really hard to create a money management business that lasts ten years, twenty years, thirty years, or, or even longer. I think we have some things that are structural that are going for us. We have a pretty solid brand. We have really good distribution channels, distribution partners, and things of that nature. We have a great client base that are aligned with us in terms of how they think. And that is an asset that cannot be overstated in the investment management world. However, we don't have any of these things if we can't continue to deliver great performance for clients in the long term. And this is obviously really, really hard to keep up for an investment management business. It's not like an industry where anything is patented or anything like that. Knowledge is free that's out there. And a lot of people have been learning lessons that we've learned years ago. Broadly speaking, you can tell that there are a lot more quality growth investors out there than ten or fifteen years ago. So, how do we perpetuate the track record that we've been able to accumulate for not just like one or two years, but rather for the next ten years or even longer? And that's a really, really hard question. I guess I can. Probably go down a couple of different dimensions. So, number one, I think our overall investment framework in terms of looking for companies with great mo trajectories and great cultures that's fairly evergreen. But as we have talked about before, in terms of execution on that framework, there is a lot of wiggle room, a lot of room for interpretation, and that's something we can always try to improve on. How do we make better decisions in context of this overarching framework? Obviously, we have to constantly learn, and we talked about that a bit as well. You're always trying to build new mental models. You're always trying to expand your domain of knowledge. You're always trying to create those new connections, connect the dots across industries, across geographies, and so on and so forth. And that's. An ongoing journey that will never stop because the world is constantly changing, and new domains of knowledge and interesting things are happening all the time. And at the same time, too, 
we have to recognize that a lot of the things that we think today in terms of the mental frameworks that we have based on past experience is going to have to evolve. A lot of these things are not going to be the same 10 years from now. We're going to have to abandon our deeply held beliefs in the face of a changing world of changing empirical evidence on the ground. And that's not always easy to do, especially if you had success with a given mental framework in the past. But we have to be humble enough to change our mind about things. I think there is also a lot of room to improve in terms of how we think about corporate cultures. And this is a just a very, very difficult area because it is so fuzzy. I mean, that is a criticism a lot of people have about researching corporate cultures. It is so fuzzy and subject interpretation. We've made a lot of progress in the last five plus years, but there is just a ton more to do. How do you better be able to recognize great founders, great management teams, and great cultures? There's many different interpretations of what that is. And I think we've gotten better, but certainly there's a lot more to go. And at the same time, just as importantly, how do you recognize in real time when a culture is perhaps breaking down a bit and that's actually causing a problem longer term for the business? That is actually an even harder problem than recognizing a great culture in the first place. Because when you're watching a culture in real time, it's difficult to identify those meaningful changes because naturally this is a slow evolving thing and it's all often death by a thousand cuts type of situation. But nevertheless, that is definitely a dimension we need to improve on in the longer term. And I think there's a lot to do there. And I guess lastly, I'll probably talk a bit about just temperament, which is not an area that gets... I feel like a lot of ink in the investment management space, although everybody recognizes it's important. And just like culture, temperament is like a bit difficult to really describe. And I certainly feel that for myself, and I think a lot of other people on the team, it's always constant journey of self-discovery. You're constantly trying to learn more about yourself, your own psychology, and how you make different decisions under different circumstances. And having that degree of self-awareness really helps you. You're born with a certain type of temperament, but it's also trainable over time as well if you're deliberate about it. And there's lots of things that we all do internally, like, for example, journaling or postmortems and things of that nature. And a lot of that goes into being more self-aware and also being better at this temperament standpoint how to better process large gains or losses or mistakes. How do you behave under various scenarios, whether it's a very stressful scenario or if everything is going very well. And I think as you learn more and more about yourself, you're naturally going to try to make or you're naturally going to make better decisions in the longer term as well. And that is really the bottom line for the investment game. If I can improve my batting average or I guess, my slugging percentage as well, from a decision standpoint, I'm probably going to deliver performance for clients in the longer term. Those three dimensions are really top of mind for us today. Great. Well, Mike's a fascinating look at applying the uh, principles of WCM. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a set of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It's kind of lame, but learning about all sorts of different things, I will say. I have pretty broad interest in a lot of different areas. And I try to learn something every few months, honestly. More recently, I've been really trying to educate myself on, for example, how semiconductors work. Earlier this year, I was doing a lot of reading on DevOps. 
just an example. But just really trying to expand your areas of knowledge is just fascinating to me, and I try to I try to do it on a semi-disciplined basis, I suppose. What's your most important daily habit? I do take a long walk with my wife every day. We started during the COVID because we're cooped up all the time, and it's a way for us to get exercise and whatnot. But it's actually been really, really good. We kind of go out usually for about an hour in the evenings. And we can talk and do things. And honestly, it's been tremendous on multiple levels for me. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who can't get to the point. (laughs) (laughs) How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? I think a lot of people have very fixed mindsets. If you only have one way of looking at the world, and that's like the one lens you apply to that thing, typically that kind of annoys me, honestly. For example, there's people out there who's like, Oh, DCFs. That's an overused example, but that's one example, right? But there's many people who have very fixed mindsets when it comes to applying a particular mental model to certain things. And they're just incapable of seeing the situation from a different angle. And that, from an investment side, that's probably my biggest pet peeve. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? It sounds lame, but I probably have to say Warren Buffett. It's got to be one of them. I mean, that was probably my original on-train to investing, reading all his letters and books and whatnot, and actually thinking about it. Longer-term investing, focusing on quality, other things that he says around governance and whatever else. It's just, especially in my formative years, had a tremendous amount of impact on me. The second, I would honestly say probably like all the stuff at Morningstar. And it's not just one person, obviously. You can say like Pat Dorsey or something like that, who's a director of research there. But that overall ecosystem, I was just so thankful to be there, especially when I started my career, to be able to be inducted into that very particular way of thinking about economic modes, thinking about quality and whatnot. There was just tremendous amount of preparation, I suppose, for what we do at WCM today. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Well, so many mistakes to to choose from. Typically, I will say my biggest mistakes are just being too stubborn (laughs) or just not changing my mind fast enough. And the other category of mistake is probably just doubling down on mistakes, which I've actually gotten better at over time as well. I find that usually it just really knowing when to change your mind. That's a huge part of investing that's probably underappreciated by most people. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think perseverance, more so than anything else. And also, if you set your mind to it, there's nothing you can't do. I mean, it sounds kind of lame. But for example, here in investing, you have to learn about all sorts of different things in many, many different domains. An opportunity is often found in the cracks between different domains. Having a breadth of knowledge often lets you frame a particular situation in a different way. But being able to learn all these different things, it doesn't come easy, really, honestly. It's a lot of effort. But you really have to convince yourself. It's like, okay, if I really set my mind to it, I can understand this. With that as a starting point, you're generally successful, or at least you would learn enough about it in order to be dangerous, so to speak. <laughs> All right, Mike, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? It's never too late to get started. I wish I got started earlier. 
And whenever it comes time to learn about a particular thing or to do a particular thing, I usually think it's like, oh gosh, I should have done this like three years ago. Why didn't I? So fight the fight against procrastination, I suppose. And it's like, oh, I can always do it later. That's something you, you constantly have to you have to adjust against, I guess. Mike, thanks so much. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from WCM. The securities identified and described do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended for client accounts. The listener should not assume that an investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable.